obvious sound. There's a huge edge to be gained by looking into things like this. With the hype, it's only going one way. He's still too cheap. How can you not love fantasy football? Welcome into the Fantasy Sanctuary. This is the first in a series of three going in-depth on Best Ball ADP from 2022. We're going to look at the good, we're going to look at the bad, and we're going to look at the downright awful. First of our guests for the first three parts is John Daigle. You should know him from 4 for 4, Bet Spurts, formerly of NBC Rotor World, one of the best fantasy analysts out there, and I can't think of a better person to kick us off. John, thanks so much for coming on tonight. Thank you for the kind words. Excited to be here. Uh, it is into January, so a little bit early for me to start diving into best ball overall, but I think we have some takeaways to talk about. Not to mention, Underdog does have a early 2023 best ball draft going on as well, so I'm sure people are already in those streets. Exactly that. And FFPC have kicked off their drafts this week. And in seven or eight months, DraftKings will probably decide people want to do best ball as well. So best ball, it's no longer like it used to be. We're going all year round and there's no time to rest. So let's jump into round one. Jonathan Taylor, Christian McCaffrey, Justin Jefferson, Cooper Cup, Jamar Chase, Austin Eckler, Derek Henry, Stefan Diggs, Dalvin Cook, Devontae Adams, Najee Harris, and Travis Kelsey. This is a really good round one this year. I mean, in terms of advance rate and stuff like that, I've got on screen here, you can see that seven of the 12 players actually had positive advance rates. And there weren't too many letdowns from this group. Again, looking at fantasy points over expected, we've got here, but it was only really Jonathan Taylor and Najee Harris who really stunk things up a lot. And you can kind of look at both those running backs. They both had injuries. We both dealt with quarterback changes and offensive line issues. I was kind of in the camp that CMC had a high ceiling than Jonathan Taylor coming into the year. But I definitely, I think the arguments were fair one way or the other. Whereas Najee Harris felt like somebody who always looked like he could be one of the worst picks of the first round. What was your kind of feel going into the year about how these two running packs could perform? And if you were looking ahead to 2023, how do you feel about them going forward? What happened for Jonathan Taylor is an easy explanation. He just got injured. But once he returned from injury, even under Jeff Saturday, he became an every touch back. He reached 20 carries in every single game under Saturday until he got injured. So I'm not really worried about Jonathan Taylor's usage. I would imagine whatever new coach, whatever new OC they bring in, whatever new quarterback they also bring in, will feature uh, one of the best running backs in the league. I think that's pretty logical. If Jeff Saturday can get there, I'm sure a lot of other people can get there. So Jonathan Taylor, I would imagine, is going to go the route of Saquon Barkley, where early on people may, Saquon Barkley last year, I should say, because early on people may draft him like early second, mid-second, and then they're going to catch up to speed really quickly and understand that he should be jammed into the mid-to-end first round. And so that's kind of where I'm handling Jonathan Taylor. Najee Harris went the way we basically expected him to. And honestly, you you can look and say, well, he did at, he did average just 51 rushing yards per game. Uh, no, 40 rushing yards per game on that injured foot until the team's by. And then by every advanced metric possible, 
in his last nine games, he averaged 75 rushing yards, was just so much more efficient and explosive over the second half of the season. Also reached 20 carries in five of those games. Did reach 20 carries in a single game before the bye. So he was clearly healthier and handling a larger workload as well. But coming into the year, we knew we knew his volume wasn't going to sustain in a quarterback change in a new offense just because the, the way Ben Roethlisberger threw is why Harris saw 40% of his targets at or behind the line of scrimmage in 2021. Like that was never going to be the case with Kenny Pickett, Mitch Trubisky, because no one was just going to dump the ball off like like Roethlisberger's dead arm allowed Harris to reach these, these catch totals. So yeah, it, it went as expected. We'll see what happens for the Steelers. It sounds like they are bringing Matt Canada back. So we're expecting some of the same offense, which isn't necessarily good for Najee Harris, but it's going to depend where his ADP lies and if people are drafting him for his first half of the year or the second half of the year is when I'll dive in. How much does Jalen Warren really worry you going forward? So, you know, I know we're kind of retrospect really, but it just feels so tied to it. That was where the problem came from because for years people would talk about how Mike Tomlin always wanted to lean on to just one running back. Mm-hmm. And then this year we saw that they just, Jalen Warren really stole a good work opportunity in that backfield. And spinning forward, I know people are going to be very hesitant to draft Najee Harris in 2023, but do you feel like Najee Harris can retake that job and be the sort of round one running back that we saw last year? But if they felt confident enough to split Harris's workload down the stretch, and remember, this was a this was nearly a playoff team down the stretch, and Najee and Jalen Warren did reach double digit touches and two of his last four games. And that was with this team competing. So if that's the case, you would imagine he's still going to be a nuisance in 2023. At the same time, though, again, I'm going to let ADP dictate how I handle Najee Harris moving forward because I don't expect him to be a bad pick, but it will, in my opinion, resemble a poor man's version of Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard. Not necessarily a... David Montgomery, Cleo Herbert situation, but Zeke and Pollard is what I'm looking at. If that's the case, maybe Warren provides some sneaky standalone value for at least best ball, not redraft. I, I can't imagine being the situation where I would start him if Harris is in, but best ball, sure, I think Warren as well should be looked at as a late round pick. Okay, so looking at the rest of the first round, Christian McCaffrey, you know, he really, once he got to San Francisco, he really showed that ceiling. He had the second most catches amongst running backs, 18.4 points per game as second most. Yeah, seven top five weekly finishes. He did exactly what we hoped he could do if he stayed healthy, and he did stay healthy. Austin Eckler finishes the RB1 in total fantasy points, 22 more receptions than any other running back. And again, he had a great season in part because of the issues in the Chargers offense. Justin Jefferson was incredible. I mean, if you drafted Justin Jefferson, you were a really happy manager. You basically had a free square filled in straight off the bat. After that, like Cooper Cup, even his advance rates were kind of okay because nobody in this first round separated very well. It was like a lot of the first round talents had little issues where like they'd miss a couple of games or bits like that. But one player who really did separate from the rest of his position was Travis Kelsey. The tight end won 15.9 half PPR points per game, scored 4.9 points more than the next nearest tight end. Should we have seen this coming, John? I mean, we're going back to last year. Patrick Mahomes lost Tyreek Hill. And there was no real indication that Travis Kelsey had completely gone off a cliff edge. Yes, some of his metrics had dipped off a little bit, but we knew he was going to be elite, and then he just was dominant this year. 
And we tried citing some of us and fading him the age curve, the age apex. But honestly, the rest of the position was so useless that it didn't even matter. It just gave you a clear, as you mentioned, structural advantage to Travis, Travis Kelsey. I think even heading into next year, the same structural advantage exists. Thus, you are either taking Travis Kelsey as a top three, top four pick, or you're laying off and waiting for tight end until late with a three tight end build, hoping for spike weeks. Yep, completely makes sense. On FFPC, where we're talking about tight end premium, mm-hmm. the first drafts are going on already, and he seems to be sitting around that 3-4 position in the first round. Is that somewhere you'd feel comfortable taking him? Absolutely. Uh, He definitely has an argument ahead of the top two running backs, as you mentioned, Christian McCaffrey, Austin Eckler, if only because Christian McCaffrey we've seen throughout the playoffs as well. They don't mind for rest purposes, scaling him back. If they're in blowout situation, I'd imagine it'd be the same next year, whether it's Trey Lance or Brock Purdy starting for the 49ers, because we are very unclear of that situation right now, honestly. Um, And then yes, just the overall advantage he would give after Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chases of the world. Maybe Cooper Cup is back up there as well. I can definitely see myself leaning on Travis Kelsey yet again as a top three pick. Okay, brilliant. Let's move on to round two. Whilst you have all, remember to like and subscribe. Really big for us as we're just getting going. So round two, Joe Mixon, C.D. Lamb, Saquon Barkley, DeAndre Swift, Alvin Kamara, Debo Samuel, Aaron Jones, Javante Williams, Mark Andrews, Mike Evans, Tyree Kill, and Leonard Fournette. This wasn't as strong a round as the first round. So you can see here, players in orange are people who are right at the 16% advance rate. Players in green, good advance rates. Tyree Kill, absolutely rocketing. And then you can see that there's six different players who all had negative advance rate. So looking back at it now, it kind of feels like this round, there were a lot of traps and in fancy points over expected. You, know, you can see all those big red lines. They're all players in the negative. CeeDee Lamb had a great season, and Aaron Jones, and then Tyreek Hill. And apart from that, there was it was a little bit difficult to kind of get through. One of those players who really regressed was Leonard Fournette, career low in EPA per game, career low in breakaway yards, and Tampa Bay's DVOA dropped to 30th after being at 5th in 2021. Should we have kind of seen this coming because there was all the fat Lenny rumors during camp and then the offensive line slowly got more and more banged up and then Rashad White was there as well. He wasn't somebody I drafted a huge amount of, but I kind of stayed at about 80% market average. Was he somebody that you felt was primed to fail in 2022? Not necessarily because I wasn't worried about Rashad White and White was basically a roster clogger. Like he didn't win any weeks for you and redraft league. You never really could start him because Leonard Fournette was still leading the team in touches. So it, I think it more or less came down to the Bucks offensive line issues and ranking dead last and yards before contact per attempt on early downs, even though they were a team that tried to run the ball on early downs for whatever reason. Uh, So I blame that situation on Fournette. But as you mentioned, Leonard Fournette's also a free agent. We're not expecting him to be back at the Bucs because we're not expecting Tom Brady to be back with the Bucs. And so whomever is under center next will not only have a new OC for Tampa Bay, but also he'll probably have a full-time Rashad White who is at least 
part of the same coaching staff, assuming Todd Bowles stays on, uh, of the regime that drafted Rashad White. So I would imagine they have a lot of confidence in White over any other option they have. So I think there's a situation more where we could be drafting Rashad White significantly higher than Leonard Fournette, depending on the situation. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. I think Leonard Fournette, he's got a couple more years on his contract, but he's very easy to cut, and it just feels like yep. without Tom Brady, there's just no point having him there. So Leonard Fournette, definitely disappointed, but one player who didn't was Tyreek Hill. He was the PPR wide receiver, two, 21 points per game, 3.3 yards per route run, which was the first. First in deep targets for 37, and he had the second most targets for 165. I kind of look back now and feel like, how do we not see this coming? I mean, we know that Mike McDaniel came from San Francisco with these yak monsters, players being able to make Jimmy Garoppolo be fantasy viable. And there was a lot of talk consumed about could Tua throw deep, but we just seem to get lost on the idea that he didn't really need to, and Tyree Kill became one of the absolute steals of the second round. And we have to see if, Tua even returns in 2023 if he plays football again. I would imagine he does, but remember he suffered three concussions in three months, and the last time he suffered that concussion prior to the Packers game, there were reports about him just questioning like whether he wanted to even play again because he got so down in the dumps and was mentally unhealthy that he was scared to return. And so we'll see what happens, but clearly we had a load of wide receivers to choose from. Remember, at the end of the second round, we were all deciphering in best ball last offseason whether it was going to be Tyreek Hill, Debo Samuel, Mike Evans, A.J. Brown, or Michael Pittman. T. Higgins was also there, among others. And really, the only players that got there were either A.J. Brown or Tyreek Hill, Tyreek Hill being more valuable than A.J. Brown because it was not a 1A, 1B situation with Jalen Waddle, like Tyreek Hill still led the team with a 31% target share from Tua compared to a 21% target share for Waddle. That's a vastly big difference. So yes, like Tyreek Hill should very well be a top half at the very least mid first round selection. And of course, if Tua's back, we are absolutely trusting him under Mike McDaniel. Yeah, and just picking up on your point about wide receivers, that's what's really noticeable here in the second round, that C.D. Lamb had an at-average advance rate, and then you look at Debo Samuel, who always felt like a bit of a trap with Trey Lance, wasn't even able to recreate the magic with Jimmy G and then got injured. Mike Evans regressed heavily. But one of the few other bright points of this round that I want to hit on quickly is Saquon Barkley. Two years removed from an ACL, coming into a contract year, had careers ha- career highs in rush attempts per game, 10-yard runs, rushing yards in general he had a career high in, and missed tackles as well he was in a career high. So it just feels like now we've seen enough evidence of these kind of running backs and even wide receivers who are second year removed from an ACL that they should be the kind of players that we were banking on. And Saquon was someone I was aggressive on early in the offseason when he was going in the third round. It just felt like an absolute gift, and he settled kind of towards the top of the second round. Was he somebody that you targeted a lot in best ball, John? Yes, and by the summer, he started trending more towards the end of the first round as well. Barkley, obviously, the discount we got early on was why friend of the show, Pat Corain, had the winning BBM3 lineup because he took the Barkley discount to advantage and started his draft with Eckler and Barkley. And as we were saying all offseason, I was adamant that we needed to draft running backs to start. And in too many lineups, I went 
three. So I went robust rather than starting with two and then scaling it back and taking apart the wide receivers with upside, like your Tyree kills, like your Diva, like your Mike Evans, T Higgins in the third through fifth round, because although they're volatile, remember we're playing a top, we're playing a large field top heavy tournament. Thus it's important to remember running backs have higher ceilings than wide receivers, despite being more volatile. So we're not worried about like the bottom, like we're going, we're shooting for the top only. So who cares about the volatility? Take on that risk rather than avoiding that risk. And it's something I think we should be looking at doing again this upcoming year. But are we going to get a Saquon Barkley, Alvin Kamara discount with players going in the second round? I don't know. We'll have to see where Jonathan Taylor and a few others stand because right now free agency is dictating a lot of the early running backs and drafts. Yeah, definitely. And there was a point where it was possible to even go kind of Eckler, Saquon, Kamara in your first three rounds, which at the time felt like a cheat code. And even for people who lean towards zero RB or are quite stoic to hero RB builds, that value felt far too good to pass up on. In the end, though, it became kind of difficult once you got into round three because there were some real pitfalls there. We had AJ Brown, Nick Chubb, T Higgins, Michael Pittman, Kyle Pitts, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Josh Allen, DJ Moore, Cortland Sutton, James Connor, and Travis Etienne. And this one, it was a kind of a round where if you were picking in those first three picks, you can see there AJ Brown, Nick Chubb, T Higgins, their advance rates were fantastic and you didn't have to worry. But where the pain really came was that next core of Michael Pittman, Kyle Pitts, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, who all really hurt you. Again, in fantasy points over expected, bunch of those right deep into the red. And it feels hard to start this conversation without talking about Kyle Pitts. He's somebody who for two years now, we've been talking about how he could have a real breakout and the skill is clearly there. But, this year, there was one top five performance. He's had three career touchdowns in two seasons. It just felt like early on in this season that there might have been a chance where the Falcons could have been not pass heavy, but more pass neutral, perhaps. But then they discovered that they were really good at running the ball and everything just from then on became run only. Do you think that we should have been more scared of Kyle Pitts going into that year with Marcus Mariota as as the quarterback and, you know, knowing that Drake London was there and that this team still had a long way to go. Absolutely. And we can look at the coaching staff that is not going to change as well for this upcoming year. I think really what, what we're trying to wait on for the offseason is who the Falcons get at quarterback. Because the issue is that if you watch the Falcons play, they don't design plays for Kyle Pitts or Drake London. They expect, they're expected to get open themselves. And then, of course, Marcus Mariota is expected to hit them in stride, which he can't do. And so if you're not scheming like your best player, Kyle Pitts, plays to get him open, it's not really a situation where I want to be back in on him. So I think personally, if you told me to guess right now, uh, I would believe Arthur Smith goes to Ryan Tannehill just because he seems to bring along his friends from Tennessee the most. And that's somewhat concerning given the age range Tannehill's coming in. So I, we're going to have to wait and see with Kyle Pitts, but it's certainly not a situation where I'm just going to say generational athlete, I'm diving right back in. I w- I'd be more tepid to start drafts than anything. Yeah, and at the minute he's going in early underdog drafts, uh, an ADP of 65. So he's not quite as high as we've seen him 
last year, definitely. And it feels like if the QB situation fell nicely, say Lamar Jackson ended up there, all of a sudden you would find a thousand pieces of content talking about how much Lamar Jackson's going to target tight ends. So I'm definitely not out on Kyle Pitts, but I'm finding it a little tricky at the minute to imagine that with another new quarterback that he's just going to roll straight on. One player who had a good season was Nick Chubb, 22 big runs, nearly 90 rush yards per game. If you were playing on DraftKings with all those 100-yard games that he got, the three-point bonus was quite big over there. Kareem Hunt's a free agent and leaving the Browns most likely. Nick Chubb, we know he's not going to get a ton of receptions necessarily, but we've probably not also seen how this offense is really going to look under Deshaun Watson. If Nick Chubb falls to the third round again this year, is he someone you can talk yourself into, John? Definitely, because as you mentioned, we're expecting Nick Chubb to be a workhorse running back. Uh, they The team drafted Jerome Ford in the fifth round this past year, so I would imagine he's the one who takes on Kareem Hunt's sprinkling of a role but overall yes we just need to we will probably be forced to bet on Deshaun Watson being better at professional football than he was in the last what six games he started because he was one of the worst quarterbacks we watched all year long yeah definitely so um, moving on from Nick Chubb we've got T Higgins who T Higgins was somebody that he's a fantastic wide receiver I mean he finished as a top 12 wide receiver this year over 1,000 yards, 3.0 fantasy points per touch. But it felt like there was a lot of conversations about how both Jamar Chase and T. Higgins could coexist at once and that we were going to have these huge explosions. And if you started a draft with Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and then got Joe Burrow, you were just cruising towards the fantasy playoffs already. There was only one week all season where the two Higgins and Chase combined to be top 20 wide receivers at the same time. Is that something that gives you any kind of pause going forward to 2023? Or do you think it was more just the Bengals took a little bit of time to get going this year? What we're seeing now is Jamar Chase has pretty much pushed T. Higgins out of the way entirely. Since Chase returned from injury in week 13, he has a 31% target share. He's averaging 12 targets per game um, with double-digit targets in every game except this past week in snowy conditions against the Bills. But even so, led the team in targets and has led the team in targets in every game since he returned. So they're really not even looking at anyone else. Like, the ceiling potential is what you're really chasing with T. Higgins, so it's fine. But I do think from the very beginning, T. Higgins, the ceiling potential in the top of the second round, uh, you know, that's where he was going in some cases since everyone tried to mix up their exposure between the group of receivers I talked about earlier. T. Higgins was going in that late second round spot, and I think that with Jamar Chase on the team was a little too high for my liking. So I'll probably still be a little more down on him, but for best ball, certainly, the ceiling is, of course, there in any given week. Yeah, and just going back to the advance rates, Josh Allen, our first quarterback here in the third round, I it was... I spent a lot of time in the offseason sort of talking about how how hard it is for the first QB off the board to pay off that cost because quite often they don't perform to be the QB one the following season. And it just seemed like, why take Josh Allen when there's quarterbacks behind him who are a better value? Right. But after crushing it this year with such a great advance rate, and then you can see his fantasy points over expected there at almost four per game he's kind of being pushed even further in the 2023 best ball to the point where he's going inside the first round in some underdog early drafts. 
is that too rich for you, or do you think I kind of need to just get on board with the early quarterbacks at the minute? It's still a little too rich for me, especially because Jalen Hurts finishes the overall QB1 in fantasy points per game. Uh, we will not get the same sixth-round discount as we did last year for Jalen Hurts, but I could see us getting a discount for the type of archetype player we like, like a Kyler Murray, for example, like a Justin Fields. And so that's what I'll probably be sitting back on for the rushing upside. But honestly, like Josh Allen, fourth or fifth round, we'll we'll have to see. I, I, I don't know. It's really just going to depend what happens with Hurts and Patrick Mahomes more than anything. Yeah, and Hertz and Patrick Mahomes are sitting tied with an ADP of 13 on the latest underdog draft. Okay. So they're real fringe round one as well. And it just, I'm sure that post draft things will ease back a little bit. But right now, those prices just feel too pricey for me. Uh, other players in the first round, I just want to give a quick mention to DJ Moore. Set a career high with seven touchdowns. He finally got past having four. It was his worst fantasy finish since his rookie year, though. And it just felt like if Sam Darnold had actually played, then DJ Moore could have been quite productive throughout the year. He was wide receiver 12 in the games that Sam Darnold played as quarterback. And a lot of the offseason, there was kind of the talk of, okay, well, Baker Mayfield's probably the best quarterback this guy's ever played with. Do you think that's kind of the conversation which more people are going to be wise to next year and not suddenly fall into going, okay, I should be taking this player in the third round because they've got a quarterback upgrade when the situation doesn't always pan out like that. It's a situation where coach and quarterback, that's the biggest one will really dictate where DJ Moore should go. DJ Moore is, although the floodgates open for a career high seven touchdowns after we waited for three consecutive seasons for him to finally score touchdowns, uh, DJ Moore, Terry McLaurin, they're all just continue to be learning lessons and to not force the situation. Like a player can be amazing, like Moore and McLaurin, but if they don't have even comp like comparable competitive quarterback play. It just doesn't matter. It's not a, it's not a player you want to go overboard on. So I think DJ Moore escaping with getting lucky in touchdowns is a, a learning curve for everyone and a lesson that should be taken just to not force the situation. Like if a quarterback's bad, just be wary of that and uh, don't try to force a player up draft board just because you like him. Perfectly said. Move on to round four. So Jalen Waddell, Alan Robinson, Zeke Elliott, Gabe Davis, Terry McLaurin, Marquise Brown, Jerry Judy, Brees Hall, Justin Herbert, Juju Smith-Schuster, Lamar Jackson, and Deontay Johnson. So this one, it's kind of like you start the round with one real positive in Jalen Waddell, who absolutely flew. And then you've got Alan Robinson, who just weighed everything back down and was really awful. But there were some good players in this round in terms of advance rate and in terms of fantasy points over expected. Again, this was a good round. You could definitely build a winning roster by getting the picks right here. And just Jalen Waddle, we'll just start with him. He was a wide receiver seven in half PPR, second in EPA per game, sixth in receiving yards, and led all wide receivers in average yards after the catch over expected. He felt like somebody that was there was a real discount on because anybody who did believe in the Dolphins' offense was just immediately pushing it all to Tyree Kill, who looked set to eat all the work. Did you envisage this kind of world where we could see both of them be really successful? Yes and no. I, I believe my take before the season was that one or the other would get there, and I would rather choose Tyree Kill than Jalen Waddle. 
Uh, both obviously were still successful in the end. But at least we know that the targets got honed down completely. Like the next closest, whenever Tua was under center, of and targets to both Hale and Waddle was Ch- Trent Sherfield, and he had a 10% target share. Like it wasn't enough to even matter. Mike Jasicki also were expecting to leave now and sign elsewhere. So maybe a, a concerted target tree, not even a tree, a concerted stump is what we're looking at yet again in 2023, which just makes him and T- Tyreek and Waddle both valuable picks again. Okay, and then one player who I'm really excited about for 2023 best ball, Brees Hall. He was the RB8 in points per game, 5.8 yards per carry, led all RBs with a 4.6 A dot as well. He's currently going as the RB9 in 2023 best ball ADP. And I think he's somebody that absolutely should be targeted for, if you're doing these early drafts, I think you can flip the build a bit and take a late anchor RB approach saying, okay, well, if he was healthy, he'd probably be going in round two or maybe even the back end of round one. I think none of us particularly guessed that Michael Carter would regress quite as badly as he did. But it just seems such a shame because Brees Hall looked like an absolute stud at the point where he got injured. And uh, if it wasn't for that, he could have possibly been in the shout for offensive rookie of the year. It was also encouraging that for a regime and staff that never trusted Michael Carter to be a full-time back, even in his rookie year, Brees Hall's in his first year, uh, in his last five games, actually, before injury, his total touches increased in every single game. And his final start before injury, he handled 76%, a season high of the team's backfield touches, 22 touches overall. And it just kept on surging and trending upwards. Like, they were more than willing to make him an every down back. He just happened to get injured at that time. So I believe he will return, and they will entrust him as they have not at any point with Michael Carter. Definitely. Okay, so Justin Herbert was a QB2 off the board. And looking back, it kind of feels a little bit strange that he got pushed ahead of the likes of Lamar Jackson, who obviously didn't have an incredible season himself. But Justin Herbert always kind of got there on efficiency, big plays and stuff like that. And unlike Josh Allen ahead of him and Lamar Jackson behind him, he didn't really have that rushing floor. And it just completely bottomed out. It's at, at the minute, he's kind of going in that QB 6 to 8 range for 2023. And just picking up back on what you mentioned earlier, he feels like somebody that people should be aggressively targeting because if he's healthy with Mike Williams and Keenan Allen, then the Chargers could definitely bounce back in a good way. Is there, Were you drafting Justin Herbert? I know Justin Herzig was very much against Justin Herbert at his cost. Did you feel like his cost was too high to take there? I believe I had him as my QB four or five. I I know outside of, oh gosh, I had Josh Allen and Jalen Hurts around the same range ahead of Patrick Mahomes. And then I had Herbert, Lamar, and Mahomes in that range in the next tier, I believe. Um Mahomes, I believe I had at the end, and he finishes the QB3. And the only the only quarterbacks that mattered, honestly, were Hurts, Allen, and Mahomes because they were the only ones who averaged more than 21 points per game, and they averaged 24 each. Like, they were the ones who actually won your league. And so I was right around there, and all in the same grouping. But overall, yeah, Herbert, to be drafted that high and then finishes the QB15 in points per game, that's egregious. Like, it's not even worth touching at all. And so firing Joe Lombardi – does help out the situation, I believe, ahead of 2023. Like Herbert 
he should shoulder some of the blame, but to finish with a league low in air yards per attempt for a player of his talent and class is just offensive to football. And so we'll have to see like who they bring in. Todd Munkin is rumored, the Georgia OC who has NFL ties. That would be really interesting since he's an air raid uh, schemer. Uh, but overall, yes, I'm waiting that situation out. It's not a situation where I want to be in on Herbert as a top four quarterback. We're just going to have to play that one by ear. Okay, and one other player we need to talk about here. So much of the offseason was spent talking about Gabe Davis. Was he a good wide receiver or not? Was he a good pick? So he was the wide receiver 34 in PPR points per game, had two top 12 weeks. What kind of kept him afloat a bit with the seven touchdowns, which was 30th most among wide receivers? He scored positive fantasy points over expected at a positive advance rate. So when I kind of look at all that, I say, well, was Gabe Davis a good pick or was he a bad pick? I'm still not entirely sure. I think he was a poor pick for his ADP, but you know, before he also suffered the injury early in the year. Uh, and in that time in his first five games, at least before his second injury, he had three top 15 finishes. You can argue Josh Allen with that MCL injury in week nine that ruined the Bills season altogether. I'm actually guessing this offseason at some point we hear that Allen played through injury over the second half of the season because he was miserable. Uh, like even even for fantasy, the, the Bills offense lacked so much ceiling over the second half of the year. It was the reason why you just kept fading them with confidence and and DFS streets every weekend. So overall, we'll have to see what happens. But Gabe Davis healthy, I, I can imagine I'll be back on in, in on him and best ball. Not redraft. We saw how much of a headache that is. But best ball, I can definitely see just swallowing that pill and moving forward. Yeah, I think so. I think if we get like a couple of round dip, depending on what happens at the wide receiver position in Buffalo, it's definitely interesting to say the least. Uh, so moving on to round five. Just remember to like and subscribe whilst I've got you here, folks. Patrick Mahomes, first pick in round five. Cam Akers, Brandon Cooks, Darren Waller, George Kittle, Rashad Bateman, Chris Godwin, J.K. Dobbins, Eamon Ross St. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, Michael Thomas, and A.J. Dillon. This round was a nightmare. There's no real other way to look at it. There were only three players who had positive advance rates. It's just, you look at all this and it's just a sea of red. There were so many pitfalls to fall into in round five. And there were so many players who got injured. I think one player in particular who I want to talk about is Brandon Cooks. And you could see there on fantasy points over expected per game. Just sea of red really cratering his value and year after year brandon cooks has been one of those where everyone's like i can't believe brandon cooks is undervalued again and he's gonna go out there and he's gonna be like a top 24 wide receiver and this year that just didn't happen he was the wide receiver 51 he had wide receiver 34 or worse in 75 percent of his games 10.2 air yards per game, which was a career low, and minus 6.2 receiving EPA, which was a career low. Was Brandon Cook someone you were firmly believing would outplay his ADP in 2022? Yes, and I blame him for taking a contract extension and then complaining that he was on the Texans. I blame Davis Mills for being terrible at football. You could blame the 
entire situation, honestly. The Texans were so poor. Uh, we'll have to see where Brandon Cooks goes in the offseason, if they bring him back, if the Texans take Bryce Young, assuming the Bears stick around or trade for another court, trade away for Will Levis. I don't know. It's still too early in that process to start guessing. Um, lots of touch and go in the situation. And, and bring back up the ADP board because really the fifth round is just all about touch and go in general. Because, yes, Amon Ross St. Brown, we knew, should not have been there the whole time. But also, like Rashad Bateman, what is his quarterback situation going to be? What is his health going to be since he never reached an 80% route rate in any game? Um, they almost like brought him along slowly, and yet he still failed to get healthy. It was a really odd situation. We will have confidence in DK Metcalf. Oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a Ravens fan. Anyone who follows me on Twitter will have noticed that I just can't help myself from tweeting about them. And it really was a case this year the Ravens were overly cautious with players. And it wasn't a case of new players picking up injuries. It was just all the injuries lingering from last year, and it just kept going. But Rashad Bateman, apparently, he's back to almost starting to run. So fingers crossed that in 2023, he's actually healthy. It just remains to be seen who's throwing him the ball. And then, of course, Cam Akers. We don't know his situation, his contract uh, headed into the year since they tried to trade him earlier. And then Chris Godwin, of course, if he doesn't have Brady, who is throwing to him, although we like the talent. So just, just tons of moving pieces right now in this fifth round. I, I'm guessing it's going to be quite shaken up from the results you see here. Yeah, definitely. And Patrick Mahomes, he was just, we kind of touched on it earlier, but he was in just on another level. He had 315 yep. passing yards per game, which again, if you were playing best ball on DraftKings, that 300 yard passing bonus that he routinely picked up is just huge. That's an extra three points per week. First an EPA per drop back, just over 5,000 yards and over 40 touchdowns. He was just everything that you hoped he would be. Uh, Eamon Ross St. Brown, like you mentioned, he didn't belong in there. So now this is two seasons in a row. The, you know, the finish of his rookie year and then throughout this year when healthy, he just looked like an absolute stud. I haven't looked at his early best ball ADP yet, but how early would you say is too early a draft Eamon Rossing Brown? Probably not a first round player, but he should be a second round player in every draft. I can imagine even he'll get sprinkled on just for people to have exposure late in the first round because all he's done for now a season and six games basically is be a number one wide receiver. I, I don't know what else you can expect him to do, especially because we do think we're going to have a quarterback upgrade. I personally believe so in Detroit this off season. So overall, of course, let everyone say that Jameson Williams will take away his targets. Let everyone say Deandre Swift will take away his targets while we take advantage of who is a top 10 wide receiver in the Monroe St. Brown. Okay. So this round, we can't, we mentioned it. Like it was injuries. It was, just a nightmare to navigate. But J.K. Dobbins, when he finally came back after having his knee scoped for the second time to remove the scar tissue, between weeks 14 to 17, he had 397 rush yards, which was first among running backs, seven yards per carry, and seven big runs. His current early ADP at the minute is RB22, so he's sitting right around that 60 range. Obviously, a lot's hinged on what's happening with Lamar Jackson, your offensive coordinator in Baltimore. Gus Edwards is heading into the final year of his deal, and the Ravens are, if they have to franchise tag Lamar Jackson, are going to be quite tight against the cap. Can you talk yourself into Dobbins for 2023? 
I believe you can pending his ADP. He'll he'll finally have a actual off season to fully recover from multiple surgeries now after he had to experience one mid season. Gus Edwards also the team can save four point four million by moving on if they need that extra money to get Lamar Jackson back. If they bring Lamar Jackson back, I truly believe that situation is about fifty fifty right now, and so we'll have to see. But we at least know that under John Harbaugh. Even in releasing Greg Roman, we think the Ravens will stay a run-heavy scheme and maybe even an upright quarterback with less mobility than Lamar can ensure even more carries for J.K. Dobbins in 2023. So, yes, I I will be in on J.K. Dobbins this year as opposed to last year. So, going back to the top of round five, out of all these players, is there one player that you really fancy for a bounce back next year because so many of them did get injured or underperform? Uh, it's not fair to say Amon Ross St. Brown. So I'll just say I will be higher on DK Metcalf for sure, assuming the Seahawks are bringing back Geno Smith. Yeah, he was somebody that I kind of got to late on. It was Colm Kelly of Rotovis when we would draft some teams together. He was just like, look, DK's a freak. He's going to catch the ball and Geno won't be that bad. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm a little too low on him. And thankfully I kind of corrected that before we got too late into the off season and I had a lot of nice DK teams on the back of it. Mm-hmm. Moving on to our last round, round six, Jalen Hurts, Darnell Mooney, Kyler Murray, David Montgomery, Elijah Moore, Elijah Mitchell, Adam Phelan, Brandon Ayuk, Trey Lance, Alan Lazard, Dalton Schultz, and Drake London. As much as this round is kind of highlighted by Jalen Hurts and how incredible he was it was another really bad round. Like you can see again, we've got just a sea of red in terms of advance rates. There were a bunch of players who really kind of underperformed. And again, you can see going into fancy points over expected per game. Again, lots of players who really routinely disappointed. Darnell Mooney, though, is somebody I just feel like I have to flag up. He was, again, that kind of someone has to catch the ball mentality. 6.8 points per game, 3.3 catches per game, one top 20 weekly performance. And we just saw that even in a completely depleted wide receiver room, he was unable to command a target share. Do you think he's somebody who will suit better being a wide receiver two in 2023 if they can bring in a good wide receiver one ahead of him? Oh, I definitely believe he's a wide receiver two in the NFL. The, the real question we're asking, though, is, is Justin Fields going to attempt more than 21 passes per game? That's what it comes down to. Because Darnell Mooney has to have five to eight targets per game to sustain production in that kind of offense. And he's not a player that can collect that since he doesn't run every route. Uh, he's more of a deep threat. So I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a situation, honestly. We'll have to see what happens with David Montgomery, too, who's now a free agent. But uh, I think it's a situation where I'll be just be higher on Justin Fields for his position overall rather than trying to squeeze in Mooney in places. Yeah. One of the guys who I quite liked in this round was Drake London, but we kind of saw that the Falcons, they just got away from the pass so much so quickly. And I'm kind of hopeful that he'll have a good year. Alan Lazard, again, looks overpriced. Dalton Schultz didn't really show up in the way he had the previous year. Brandon Ayuk was one of the few players to have a positive advance rate here. And he just looked brilliant at times. I think that's two seasons now where we've seen him really flash at times. And I would imagine that his ADP is going to be suppressed going down into 2023 because of the Trey Lance-Brock Purdy situation. 
do you feel like we've seen enough from Brandon Ayuk that he should be getting drafted higher than this in 2023? Or do you feel like the quarterback questions are fair enough that they should keep it where it is? It really just depends, honestly. That's such a touch-and-go situation because now we've seen four games with Debo Samuel and Brock Purdy, and in those games, Ayuk has a 15% target share to Debo's 25%. Like, Debo's commanded everything from Purdy. He's even rendered Kittle practically useless. Kittle's touchdown span only happened with Debo Samuel injured. So I, it's, it, it's really just going to depend on that situation. Uh, and again, I mentioned it at the top, but Kyle Shanahan hates Trey Lance. I, he, Shanahan even came out just a couple weeks ago and said, uh, tr- said Purdy is the best rookie he's ever coached, which is a slap in the face to Lance, a slap in the face to a lot of a lot of rookies Shanahan has ever coached. Uh, Rob, Robert Griffin III included. So overall, like I don't know what's going to happen there, but honestly, the 49ers can recoup it's still early enough for them to recoup a lot of first round well with lance so i think it's the situation could go either way but purdy would not be good for iuk in my opinion although i would bite the bullet you know seventh round or whatever for iuk that'd be fine yeah that seems fair okay so the superstar of not only this round but best ball right. in general this year jalen hurts feels like the perfect player for us to finish on his completion record jumped from 61% in 2021, 67%, 23 rushing TDs in the last two seasons combined. And yeah, his ADP is going right around 15 in the early 2023 best ball. Do you feel like the ceiling could get higher for Jalen Hurts? Or do you think that perhaps these rushing touchdowns that have really bolstered his scoring, they could maybe regress slightly? Because it's not often we see, I think he had 15 this year, it's not often you see dual threat quarterbacks have that many. Most of the time they're sort of sat at like seven or eight. And if that regressed by seven or eight, do you feel like Jalen Hurts is in danger of not paying off his price? The good news is that his rushing floor is going to keep him as a top five option no matter the schedule. And we drafted Jalen Hurts not only understanding they were building the offense around him. We saw it in the preseason. We saw it in the trade for A.J. Brown. Uh, but also the fact that we knew ahead of time the Eagles had the softest schedule the entire NFL. So that's why we drafted Jalen Hurts, knowing he was the archetype player that we chase if we don't get early Josh Allen. We wait for the sixth round and take a chance on Jalen Hurts overall. That's totally fine. Uh, But next year, I, I can't imagine weighing the schedule too heavily. It's going to come down to what they do in the draft. I would think they've seen enough to where they have all the confidence in the world and Jalen Hurts. But again, with a top 10 pick in the draft, not to mention another first rounder, I, I think we're going to have to see. There are a lot of options on the table. They could add another weapon as well to get Kez Watkins off the field and replace him with like another threat at wide receiver. So we will have to see. But right now, I can't imagine Jalen Hurts being outside the top three quarterbacks. Yeah, that feels completely fair. Right, so that's kind of it. We've kind of spooled through all six rounds. Got here, positive advance and negative advance rates kind of split round by round. And you can kind of see that that round one really was, it was fine. It was quite easy to hit on there. But if between rounds two, five, and six, if you landed on a combination of 27 different players who all had negative advance rates, it was a good chance that your best ball team was kind of in real sticky waters straight from the off. 
thinking back to the off season and how this season played out, John, is there any kind of global takeaways you've got about that first third of best ball drafts that you could apply to 2023? We talk about advance rate on this show a lot, but I will say you actually in best ball tournaments want to look at lower advance rates. We've seen all three best ball mania winners. One of the key aspects for their winning lineups was to have low advance rate players. So key players that not many people draft in the week 17 championship round. And so that's why Tyquan Thornton helped Crane win. He was in his starting lineup. Uh, so I'll actually be somewhat ignoring advance rates um, whenever I'm looking at week 17 matchups to fill out my roster and just trying to get low rostered pieces in favorable situations. Uh, that and, of course, the Travis Kelsey structural advantage, I think are the two key takeaways Early on, at least. Again, it's only late January. We talked about a lot of these situations because they are touch and go in free agency. We don't know how it's going to play out. We don't know if, even know if Saquon Barkley is going to be on the Giants, honestly, um, now that he's a, a free agent. And the way the Giants run their organization, it, it wouldn't shock me since everyone comes from Buffalo that they don't prioritize running back at all and just let him walk. So we'll have to see how that one plays out. But overall, yes, I think those are the two aspects I'm looking at early on and then learning from there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, advance rates is something I enjoy looking at because I think yeah. it's kind of interesting to see how they play out. But definitely in terms of one thing that is part of a much bigger conversation, which we don't have time for today, is looking at the ends of the best ball drafts and particularly in the third uh, the third part of best ball drafts where you can look to really try and get different and put a couple of undrafted players on a roster to really make your roster stand out. But John, thanks so much for coming on. If you're here, you should be following John on Twitter already. He's at NotJDaigle. You should be checking out his work on 4 for 4. The DFS podcast he does with TJ Hernandez is one of my favorite ones to listen to. John, is there anything you'd like to plug before I let you get out of here? You've pretty much said it, 4for4.com and the most accurate podcast. We will be back soon, post-playoffs, with Dynasty Shows, off-season shows, uh, player news every single week, best ball shows. It's about to start happening, keeping up with two episodes per week. So you can subscribe, The Most Accurate Podcast, wherever you listen.